Thank you for tuning in to Emmanuel Faith Community Church. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. Well, good morning, Emmanuel Faith. It is so good to be together today. Uh, If you're worshiping with us online, I hope just a little bit of what we experienced made it through your device and blessed you. Uh, We as a church exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. And my hope is that our time both in worship and in studying the scriptures together this morning serves to that end in your life. We are in what will almost be a year-long study of the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, but we're, we're breaking it up into different seasons, sort of like a Netflix show or a podcast, in order to sort of keep it fresh and help us frame each section to really dive in and try to hear what God would teach us. So the first season was entitled Fool's Gold. The second season is entitled Failure to Launch. And last weekend, we dove into this season, and we saw Paul writing to the church in Corinth, and he said to them, listen, you're, you're acting like infants, and I wish that you were further along. You're sort of in the season of delayed adolescence, failure to launch, and I'm calling you to move forward and and to grow. And last week we said that growth gets stunted when God gets sidelined, but that there's good news that God actually wants you to grow more than you want to grow. And that really what we have to do is to just get out of our own way and let the Spirit of God do a work in our life, and He will cause us to grow. And today we're going to look at one other way that Jesus is calling us to get out of our way. The year was 2004. American Idol was the second most popular show in America at the time. This episode aired on January 15th, and it aired one of the most famous or infamous auditions in the show's history. It was on that night that the world was introduced to William Hung. I don't know if you remember William, but he appeared in front of the judges and he said that his goal was to make music with his life. He wanted to make a living making music. He wanted to stop the engineering path that he was on. And he appeared and he started to sing. Anybody remember? She Bangs, right? By Ricky Martin. And he was absolutely horrible. And the judges looked at him and Simon Cowell said, and I quote, You can't sing, you can't dance, so what do you want me to say? To which Hung replied, um, I already gave my best and I have no regrets at all. (laughs) Hung became a cultural icon, not in a good way. I mean, somewhere along the way, he had a friend that said to him, you have a pretty good voice. Somewhere along the way, somebody lied to him. And somewhere along the way, he started to believe the lie. Now, this story isn't unique to William Hung. This story has been told throughout the ages in different ways and in different forms. Uh, One other story that makes the exact same point is written by Hans Christian Andersen in 1837. It's entitled, The Emperor's New Clothes. Now, the emperor is told that he has some new seamstresses in his kingdom and that they are making him a new outfit. He just simply can't see it. And there's a lot of buildup, and the punchline is that the emperor believes he's fully clothed, and he walks out in front of his people naked as the day he was born. 
And everybody goes along with the joke until one little kid, don't you love the honesty of kids? One little kid goes, hey, dude, you're naked. Right? And he's exposed in front of all of his people. See, I think William Hong and the emperor with no clothes, they serve as cautionary tales for us. Because I think that there's a little bit of William and a little bit of the emperor in every one of us. Yeah, they take self-deception to the extreme, but we all wrestle with the same thing on some level. We think we're nice, but the people around us might say they're a bit prickly. We don't think we have an anger problem, but the people who ride in the car with us might think otherwise. Uh, We think we're humble, but if you'd ask the people that know us best, maybe they would disagree a little bit. We believe that we're self-aware, but maybe, just maybe, there are a few blind spots that we all have. See, I think that William and the emperor and the apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, they all want us to ask this question, do I have an accurate view of, of me? Do you have an accurate view of you? And the answer to this problem, or this question is probably not entirely. So when the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Corinth and he says, let no one deceive himself, he's not just writing to the church at Corinth, he's writing to every single one of us. And you know what's really interesting is that within religious circles and within the church at large, we have a strong emphasis on truth. And to that I would say yes and amen. And oftentimes we're talking about objective truth or absolute truth. But here, when the Apostle Paul is talking about what's true, he's talking about what's true about you. And whether or not when you look in the mirror, you see what's actually there, or you see a figment of your own imagination. And I started to ask myself this question, why in the world is it so easy and, and I would argue universal, to deceive ourselves? Why as human beings do we play this game? And I think it's because at some level, every single one of us longs to be loved. We long for acceptance. And some of us, from a very early age, were told in no uncertain terms, you only get my affection when you achieve perfection. And so we started to have this narrative somewhere along the way that said, I have to be perfect in order to be loved. Therefore, if I am not perfect, I cannot be loved. But I cannot feel and hold the weight of not being loved. So I've got to pretend I'm perfect even when I'm not. And I've got to tell myself that lie. And on some level, self-deception is really just self-protection. We're protecting our identity. We're protecting the foundation upon which we stand. But, but. Self-deception is self-protection, but it also prevents us from walking into the life that Jesus has for us. It also causes us to stop growing. It causes us to, to not be able to experience the life and the vitality and the joy that Jesus has designed us all to walk in. So when the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Corinth and says, let no one deceive himself, he's doing that in order to fight for our joy. Because the life we all crave is on the other side of the honesty we fear. The life we crave is on the other side of the honesty we fear. 
And living in self-deception is actually no way to live at all. Because here's the truth, friends, it will eventually catch up with us. It'll catch up with us in our work. It'll catch up with us in our marriage. It'll catch up with us in friendships. It'll catch up with us in our neighborhood. It will eventually catch up with us. And when it does, it's painful. You don't need to add your amen to that. We all know that's true. That's why the Apostle Paul would echo this sentiment and write to the church in Rome, in Romans chapter 12, verse 3, and say, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you. How many? Everyone. Everyone. Not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. View yourself accurately. View yourself with sober judgment. Don't build yourself up and... Puff yourself up because eventually that facade will break down and it will be painful. And that's exactly where the Apostle Paul starts to challenge the church in Corinth. If you have your Bible, open with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to be starting in verse 18 today. But over the next few verses, Paul is going to unpack four ways that we often deceive ourselves. And what I want to do is I want to sort of unearth these and point them out so we can see the traps of self-deception because my conviction is that if we can see the strategies we often use for self-deception, it will free us to move towards honesty and experience the life and joy and peace that Jesus designed us for. So if the life that we crave is on the other side of the honesty we fear, let's figure out what stands in the way of us getting honest. Amen? Three of you? Fine. (laughs) Preach to three. Verse 18. Here's the way the Apostle Paul put it. He said this. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he might become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it's written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. And the Apostle Paul is simply quoting Job chapter 5, verse 13, and Psalm 94, 11. And he's saying, listen, eventually the wisdom of this age is going to catch up with you, and it's going to be revealed for what it is, which is foolishness and futility. And he goes on. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ's and Christ is God's. Now we'll come back to that last phrase, that collection of verses in a few moments at the end of the message. But really what I want us to wrestle with is Paul writing to the church at Corinth and saying, listen, you have bought into the wisdom of the age. The wisdom of the age. And I think he has two things in mind. First is it's a general wisdom of the age that essentially says back to God, we think we're smarter than you. Thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for giving us your commands. Thank you for wiring the universe the way that you did. But we're going to build our own Tower of Babel, and we believe that we are smarter than you, God. And every single culture throughout all time has played that game in one way, one shape, or one form. 
Second thing Paul has in mind is the unique way that the Corinthians were playing that game. They had their sophists, remember, who were traveling around espousing wisdom and people gathered in order to hear from them. They took notes and they went, wow, that, that's really, really amazing. And it was based on rhetoric and logic. And that was their brand of the wisdom of the age. And Paul's reasoning is that, listen, it's easy to deceive yourself into thinking you're on the right track simply because you're part of the majority. Because the majority of people agree with you, applaud you, are going the same way as you. But his point is, this is one of the traps of self-deception, is aligning our convictions with public opinion. As Jesus followers, let me, let me say it as clearly as I can. If we believe everything the dominant culture believes, I think it should cause us to pause. I think it should cause us to ask some questions. If our views about sexuality and money and race and government all align with the dominant narrative of our culture, might I suggest to us that we're falling prey to public opinion rather than scriptural wisdom? And this isn't true just because of the way that we're living and the time that we're living in now. This has always been true for the church. The church is called the called out people. According to Peter, they are a peculiar people, meaning the church is a bunch of weirdos. Like, we don't just get in line with culture. We swim against the stream, which is why Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. He says, you're going to be going against the flow. But let's just name that that is a challenging thing right now in our cultural moment, is it not? Because if you have a contrarian opinion to the dominant narrative in our culture, you get filleted and grilled in the court of public opinion. Outrage and venom are unleashed and you are discarded as barely even human. And that's just a reality of our day and our time. But let's be clear, let's be clear. The court of public opinion crucified the Messiah. So we don't exactly want to get in line with that, do we? I mean, it was the religious, political, social, economic leaders of the day who all yelled, crucify. And I think Soren Kierkegaard, the great Danish philosopher's words, would be applicable for, applicable for us today. And he wrote, the crowd is untruth. If we're just in line with what everybody else is saying, we might be out of line with what God is teaching. And so we must choose ancient scripture over current trends because popular acceptance does not equate with divine approval. It just simply doesn't. And one of the ways we deceive ourselves is when we, if we think, listen, I'm in the majority, I'm with the masses, then I must be okay. And Paul goes, no, 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 not the wisdom of the age is not the measuring stick. That, that's when you measure yourself that way, you become the emperor with no clothes. And he goes on. And this is what he writes in verse 1 of chapter 4. So this is how you should regard us as stewards, as servants and as stewards of the mystery of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. 
And if you've been with us over the last few weeks, this probably has echoes and reverberation to Paul's uh, statement, we follow Paul, we follow Apollos, we follow Christ, and the divisions that were going on within the church. We said last week that one of the best ways to stop growing is to view yourself as a master instead of a servant. And he's echoing that once again right here. But he points out at the very end, and I love this, that his goal as a servant and as a steward is simply to be found what? Faithful. He's going, my, my role, Paul says, is not to be successful. It's not to have my name in lights. It's just simply to be faithful to the task that God has put in front of me, and he will determine how fruitful I become. My goal is not success. My goal is faithfulness to the way of Jesus. And he goes on in verse 3, and he says this. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by any of you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. If you have your own Bible or your 1 Corinthians journal, circle that, underline that. We'll come back to it in just a moment. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one of us will receive his commendation from the Lord. Now, verse 3 suggests that the church in Corinth is judging Paul in some way. They're judging his ministry vitality. They're judging his character. We're not exactly sure. But Paul's response to them is, um, we might even call it drastic. He says to the church in Corinth, don't judge me. And you know why you can't judge me? Because I'm not even judging me. He says, listen, I have a clean conscience, but that is completely irrelevant. Did you catch that? Verse 4. I am not thereby acquitted. Paul's saying, my clean conscience does not mean that I stand right and holy on my own before God. It's one of the ways that we deceive ourselves. We assume a clean conscience equals right standing. And Paul claims that even though his conscience is clear, that is irrelevant to his accountability before the Lord. Here's his point. Don't put your confidence in a clear conscience. Put your confidence in the grace of God. See, I see Paul doing his best to live right before a holy God. And I see him honestly admitting that he very well may have blind spots that he, and this is a bit redundant, doesn't see. And you might too. In fact, would you turn to the person next to you and say, you might have some blind spots. You might have some blind spots. We all might have, we all do have some blind spots. And so Paul's saying, listen, I don't even have confidence in my own conscience because I might, my heart and my intentions might be revealed before God and I might find some things out about me that I didn't know were true about me in the moment. And let's just step back for a moment and name our spot on our cultural map to say this type of thinking is anathema in our culture right now. For us to say, there's some things about me that I might not even know are true. 
I might feel like I'm right and pure, but I may be completely off. That is anathema because the major idol in our day and our time is the idol of self. The only blasphemy left in our culture is to deny yourself because we are the new God. And so for Paul to write, I don't even judge myself, sends echoes and reverberations throughout our cultural moment. He goes, I might be wrong and I might not even know it. See, there are ways that you and I maintain a clear conscience even when we're guilty. Here's what we do. We often blame other people. Well, I, I wouldn't have said that if they didn't say what they said to me. It's their fault. It's not my fault. This one isn't on me. This one is very clearly on them. And why do we do that? So that we can feel good, feel okay, right? Self-protection, self-deception. Here's the other thing we do. We compare. We go, well, I'm not nearly as bad as them, or I'm not going down that road like they're going down that road. Or, yeah, I know I have a little bit of an anger problem, but have you met my buddy? My goodness. As if God is grading on a curve, right? And he's going, well, yeah, you're right. You're not as bad as them. Okay, you're doing fine. I'm just telling you, God wants way more for you than you often want for you. But we compare ourselves to others so that we can feel good. And then we just simply deny. Uh, Drinking problem? I don't have a drinking problem. I could stop anytime I want to. I just don't want to, right? We we just simply distance ourselves from reality so we can protect ourselves in our little bubble of self-deception, which is self-protection. But all the time, we are trying to preserve a clean conscience, even though it's not a reality. We blame, we compare, we deny, all so that we can feel okay about ourselves. Paul just brings that to the surface and says, let's not play that game anymore. Because the life we crave is on the other side of the honesty we fear. Let's stare these things in the face, friends, and by the grace of God, let's move towards something better. Listen to the way that Paul moves forward. He says this, verse 6. I've applied all these things to myself and to Apollos for your benefit. He's going, I'm going first person so that you can step into this with me, church in Corinth. That you may learn by us not to go beyond what's written, speaking about scripture, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against the other. And in so many ways, I think this idea of being puffed up is at the heart of self-deception. It literally paints the picture of blowing air into a balloon. where the balloon grows and grows and grows. And it's this metaphor for pride. That pride does the exact same thing to a life. And Paul's going back to this idea of I follow Paul and I follow Paulos that's still running in the background. But then he diagnoses why they hold on to pride. And it's because they have a lost perspective of this life that God has given For who sees anything different in you? Or what do you have that you did not receive? This is a rhetorical question, but let's answer it. What do we have that we didn't receive? Nothing. Nothing. And if you received it, 
why do you boast as if you did not receive it? If it's all a gift, why are you pretending that you've earned it based on your own effort? And Paul launches into a third way that we often deceive ourselves. We think we've earned what we've actually received. We think we've earned what we've actually received. And some may push back here and go, listen, I worked really hard for what I have. I put in the time and I put in the energy and I exerted the effort and I made wise decisions. And that's where I, why I am where I am. And Paul looks back at you and says, you're the emperor with no clothes. Because how did you get the intellect that allowed you to make those decisions? How did you maintain the effort? How did you put forth the effort to continue to work and continue to do what you did? It was all, if you go back far enough, friends, it is all a gift from God because your very lives are a gift from God. What you think you own is actually on loan from the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It is all grace. It's all grace. That's why the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Rome and said, for from him and through him and to him are how many things? All things. So to him be the glory forever. Amen. That includes our lives too. And we get deceived when we start to think, I've earned this. I've done. This is mine. And God goes, no, 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 no. This is all grace. Take a deep breath. Grace. You just experienced grace. Paul continues. Already, you have all you want. Already, you've become rich. Without us, you have become kings. Good for you. I hope you sense the sarcasm, right? Paul's poking at them a little bit, right? And if you have your own Bible with you or you have your 1 Corinthians journal, circle that word already because it's really important. He, said, he goes on to say, and would, you did, and, and would that you did reign. I wish you did so that we might share in the rule with you. Now, this word already is absolutely key because it points out a theological fallacy that the Corinthian church had believed. The fallacy is called overrealized eschatology. Will you say that with me? Overrealized eschatology. And here's what that essentially means that essentially means that they took all of the promises of what Jesus would bring when he returns and what Jesus would do when he sets up his earthly kingdom right here. They took all of those promises and they pulled them into the present, believing that they had everything in all of its fullness that God had promised them right then and right now. And Paul goes, No, 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 no. There's still more to come. Uh, that Jesus has given his deposit, he has inaugurated the kingdom, but the kingdom is not here in all of its fullness because Jesus has not come back to rule and to reign here and now. Christ will return, and when he does, the resurrection of the dead will happen, and when that happens, his kingdom will be ushered in in all of its fullness, and Jesus will wipe out sin and death and evil once and for all, and we will experience every good thing that he has promised us. Somebody say amen. amen. But we live today in what theologians call the now, but not yet. His kingdom is at hand, but we don't experience it in all of its fullness yet 
because sin, death, and evil are still a part of our present reality. And so Paul says, I wish that it were true, but it's just not. And he makes the point about how he knows it's not true because of what he's experiencing in contrast to what the Corinthian church is experiencing. Verse 9. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as the last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger, we thirst, we're poorly dressed, we're buffeted, we're homeless, and we labor working with our hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Somebody say, wow. And Paul is pointing out a contrast between what the Corinthian church is experiencing and what he's experiencing. And he wants to push back on them. And he wants to say to the Corinthian church, you think you're in God's will. You think you're following Jesus because life is easy and you're comfortable. But that's not the mark of following Jesus. The mark of following Jesus is that when you're slandered, you bless. The mark of following Jesus is when people speak bad about you, you encourage them. The mark of following Jesus is that when it gets difficult and when it gets challenging and when it gets hard, you continue to push forward instead of tapping out. Those are the marks of following Jesus. And he pushes back on their self-deception and he says, we mistake worldly comfort for divine blessing. That's one of the marks of being deceived. We go, well, God, you must be blessing because my life is going great. But if our life is going great, and we're not living out the teachings and commands of Jesus, then we're like William Hung dancing and singing on a stage. An absolute joke in the eyes of heaven. I think what Paul's saying is to the Corinthian church is you've let the ends justify the means. But that's not the way the kingdom of God works. Just because your finances are flourishing, it doesn't mean you're experiencing God's blessing. You might be cutting corners and living against the ethos of the kingdom. Just because you're experiencing safety and comfort, it doesn't mean you're experiencing God's blessing. You might be going against what he's commanded, which is to lay down your rights. Just because your kids are happy, doesn't mean you're experiencing God's blessing. You might be giving them everything they want and setting them up for utter failure later on in their life. See, I think there are ways that we deceive ourselves too when we mistake worldly comfort for divine blessing. And it might benefit us today to just say, okay, are there any ways that I'm the emperor believing I'm fully clothed, but I'm totally naked? Okay. So this is some challenging stuff. Yes? I mean, this, this takes some work and some courage to push into. It takes work because some of us have built our whole life around our blind spots, protecting those and making sure that we don't see them. And it takes some courage because self-deception is self-protection. And we feel exposed when we start to name some of the things that 
deep down we might know are true about us. So before we move forward, would you just ask the question, is there any way I'm aligning my convictions with public opinion? Is there any way I'm assuming that my, because my conscience is clean, I stand right before God? Is there any way that I believe deep down inside that I've earned what I've actually received? And is there any way I'm justifying that the, I'm allowing the ends to justify the means? Saying, yep, God's blessing because my life is going great. I want to spend the last few minutes we have together sort of painting a picture of what it looks like to say, I I want to get honest. If the life we crave is on the other side of the honesty we fear, how do we get honest? Let me give you three ways. Number one, through wholehearted prayer. Where we bring our whole self before God. And we pray the same prayer. I would encourage you to use even the same words that David used. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me. And know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and then lead me in the way everlasting. I love this prayer and I'm terrified by this prayer. Who's with me? Right? I love this prayer because it's so gritty and so honest. God, search me, try me, and see if there be any grievous way in me. David's saying, God, you might see things about me that I don't see about me. And if you see them, show me. Point them out to me. And then I'm committing to walking in a different direction, to repenting of my sin that maybe I don't even see and moving forward by your grace. Yeah, Paul would say that on the day of judgment, our hearts and thoughts will be laid bare and that our motives will be laid open for God to see. I don't know about you, but I want to see what he's going to see on that day today so that I can realign my motives, my heart, and my life with the way of the kingdom. Amen? I'd invite you this week, would you just spend some time praying this prayer and then listening? Here's the second thing, and we'll dive into this more next week. But the second thing is sharpening relationships. And Paul is modeling this for us in this letter. He's writing some things to the church in Corinth where when they hear them, they're not going to go, that's awesome. I'm so glad you said that. I'm so glad you called us infants and babies. Right on. No, he's saying some really, really hard things. He's, He's speaking the truth in love. And here's my question. Do you have people in your life who will do the same thing? Do you have people who will say the hard things? Do you have people that will say to you, I know you believe this is true, but let me tell you what I see in you. And it may not be what you see. My spiritual director said this to me a few weeks ago, and I wanted to hang up the phone on him. Okay? And here's the thing about this, right? Like, we all know this verse. You probably do. Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. And we go, yes, I want iron sharpens iron relationships. Well, here's the thing. When iron sharpens iron, sparks fly. Heat rises, fire happens. When iron sharpens iron, it hurts and it's painful. And unless we are willing to go there with other people, we will never grow into the people that God has designed us to be. So will you seek this out? Will you invite it? And will you become this kind of friend in somebody else's life? That's the invitation that we have in front of us today. 
Then finally, I said we were going to come back to this passage, but let me read it for you again. Go back to chapter 3, verses 21 through 23. Paul wrote this. He said, for all things are yours, which is quite the universal cosmic statement, is it not? Is it not? All things? Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. So Paul's like, I want to cover it all. And you are Christ's. And Christ is God's. So if we're going to go on this journey of self-reflection that combats self deception and experience the joy Jesus has for us, I believe we have to stand on the foundation of knowing that we are Christ's, that he calls us his own, that he's forgiven us and washed us clean and he's made us holy. He calls us his beloved children because if you don't know who you are at the core of your being, you will have no ability to look in the mirror and name what you actually see. It's that foundation that we stand on that allows us to, with honesty, name what we see and journey forward by the grace of Jesus. So the things we need to move forward towards honesty, wholehearted prayer, sharpening relationships, and then a secure identity. Because if your identity is built on anything else, you will be unable to examine your heart, your actions, and your motives and to name them as they actually are. Because doing so would cause so much of a threat to your identity. For those who find their identity in being perfect, failure is fatal. For those who find their identity in being successful, not achieving the level of success that we want is to be avoided at all costs. For those who find their identity in their physical looks and beauty, aging is the enemy. For those who find their identity in being powerful, weakness is absolutely devastating. See, you cannot be honest with yourself unless you know you are Christ's. And regardless of how far you fall short when you look in the mirror, even of your own expectations, his grace is enough. Regardless of how much you fail, his mercy is more. And when we're able to name those things, we can then start to grow from those things and become the kinds of people that Jesus is inviting us to become. But unless we are willing to be honest with ourselves, we will continue on this downward spiral of self-deception, which has never, ever, ever served anybody well. So when you start to pray, God, search me. And he answers the prayer. And when you start to ask for honest feedback from others and they give it to you, remind yourself, this is who I am. We sang it this morning. I am a child of God. And regardless of how far I fall short, I'm still his. And naming this will help me grow to become the kind of person and experience the kind of joy that I long for. See, when we get honest, we're able to receive God's grace and experience the growth that he longs to pour into our life. That's the invitation. 
that's in front of every single one of us. The question is, do you want to be like William Hung and do you want to be like the emperor or are you willing to, by the grace of God, name what you see in reality and then start to grow? Because I'm convinced the life you crave is on the other side of the honesty that you fear. So let's get honest and let's walk into the life that Jesus purchased for us. Thank you for listening to our service. We'd love to have you join us in person. For more information about our church and service times, please visit efcc.org. If you would like to support the ministries of Emmanuel Faith, you can do so at efcc.org give.